Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 262. I want to dedicate this program to my beloved uncle, which was passed away yesterday on the 20th of Sivan, Absalom, the Ber Raskin, all of Absalom. May his neshama go to the place that Hashem wants it to go. Uh, that we say an elevation, and may his family be consoled. It happens also to be the yard site of my father, the 14th yard site, which was also Chof Ir. As always, we begin with something that is timely. So when the week of Parsha B'chukosai, which is the last Parsha in the book of Ayikra, we are also, this coming Shabbos will also be Shabbos Mavarchim Chedesh Sivan. Rish Chedesh Sivan, which of course is the month of Matan Teda, which in two weeks will be from now, will be Shvuas. So, Shleishimim Kedem Achag, 30 days before a holiday, we begin to talk about a holiday, definitely two weeks before. When it comes to Shvuas, it's somewhat different because Shvuas follows the 49th, 50th day from Pesach. But still, the, the logic applies to Shvuas as well. So, though we'll have another program next week, obviously all this connects as we count down. Literally, because that was the whole point of the counting of the Omer, or one of the points, as the Ran. The Ran writes at the end of Mesach Psachim that the Jews, in their gaguim, in their yearning for receiving the Torah, they actually counted the days. So the mitzvah of Lachem, which is counting the Omer, of course, is a mitzvah, but there was an additional element that year where they counted down to Matan which was also a process of refinement as we've discussed in previous weeks, previous years. So, which means when you will follow my laws, and the laws here are referred to and you will protect, you will preserve my mitzvahs. So then, come the blessings, I will give you rain in its time, and the other blessings. <clears throat> this parsha, of course, also includes the opposite of blessings. It's part of some negative things, if you don't follow. Chassidus explains that even those also have blessings in them, they're just blessings in disguise, which is connected, of course, also to Lag Bamer, which we're coming from on Thursday. Rajbi sent his son, the Gemara says, the famous story, Rabbi Lozer, to get blessings from the sages, and instead of blessings, he came back and said, they didn't bless me, they cursed me. Rashbi asked his son, Rabbi Shimon asked his son, what did they say? And he began to repeat. So Rabbi Shimon says, no, these are really only truly brachas. Now the brachas were concealed in a language that sounds like the opposite. So of course the question is asked, why is that the case? Why put, why did they just bless him in an open, revealed way? So the Alter Rebbe in the on this parsha, Chukesai brings the Gemara and says, Tzemach Sadiq actually takes the Gemara and says, because sometimes brachas are that are so profound and so deep that they're concealed, they can't come down in a revealed way. They can only come down in a package that seems to be the opposite. They're concealed. But it's really even deeper blessings. There are many other explanations for why they did it this way. I've spoken about this, I believe, in previous years, and I'll refer them to you shortly. Um, but it tells us that no matter what we experience in life, sometimes things are revealed blessings, like at the beginning of the chapter, and even those that seem the opposite, 
they're really not, as we know the story with the Mitla Rebbe and the Alta Rebbe, not in this Pasha, but in Pasha Kisavei, with that one year, the Mitla Rebbe fainted when he heard the curses, so to speak, the clawless, in the chapter in Kisavei. Here we have 24, there there's 48. So they asked him, what do you mean? Every year you hear the Torah. He says, when my father reads the Torah, which he meant that Alter Rebbe would read every year, that year he was traveling, he wasn't there. And the Tata Lent, that when my father reads, I only hear brachas. What does that mean? It's the same sukkim, same verses. But when he reads it with his tone and his intonation and his kavana, you hear the primias, the inner meaning of it all. Which is an unbelievable way of looking at life in general. There are things that are positive that happen in our lives, and there seems to be things that can be negative. And truth is, even negative has powerful energy, it just has to be transformed. Here's not the place to go into why sometimes it has to manifest in the negative, but one of the reasons is, as explained in Tanya as well, is because it's the only way to package most intense power. Sometimes you can't give it. If you give it in a revealed way, you have a limited flow. Sometimes the best way to give a powerful flow is you put it in a package that seems to be concealed, does not reveal that blessing, but that reveals even a deeper dimension. And this is true in all forms of expression and communication, sometimes in a hint, or in something even a riddle, where you say something that sounds opposite that you, of your intention, you actually bring out the deeper ingenuity from the person who's deciphering the code, deciphering the cryptic code within the words that you're using, as just as an example. In Bechokesei Telecha also emphasizes, as the Alter Rebbe explains, Bechokesei from the word chikike. We know mitzvahs can be called mishpatim, edus, chukim. Mishpatim usually referred to generally logical, rational mitzvahs. Edus is commemorative, like Shabbos, Pesach. They commemorate events. And chukim are things that are super rational. We may not have a logical reason. But it's only chukim that has the word, also from the word chuk. Chukah chakakti. Gzeda gazarti. Chukah chakakti, a chukah I engraved. What's engraving? As he explains there, there's two ways to write something down. You can write something down, letters on parchment. So though they join together, but ultimately they were two separate entities, they remain two separate entities. When you engrave something, engraved letters in the tablets, it's not too separate. It's engraved within the same item. It's not ink on parchment. It's the stone itself is now those letters. When it comes to a relationship with the divine, a relationship with our souls, a relationship with our own inner truths, you can have a relationship where you're connected, by, like ink on parchment. Or you can have a relationship that's an integral part of who you are. In rational mitzvahs, and even commemorative ones, you don't always see that integral element. Because you can say it's the rational reason. Take away that reason and maybe you wouldn't be so committed. So the ink connects to the parchment, but you can, under certain circumstances, separate them again. You can erase it. And we see a safer tater has to be checked because it's possible there should be a crack, there should be even a letter distorted or even erased. When it comes to engraved letters, that's impossible. You can stuff it up. It can be blocked by dust and other paraphernalia, other items that can conceal but it never loses, the stone always remains engraved within it because it's part and parcel. And that's only in mitzvahs that don't have any particular rational reason is because God said so, it's part of who we are. I'm saying, why do you do this? Because I love you. Not because it makes sense, because I love you. That is something you know a person will never part with. It remains part of who they are. Now we need both. We need 
that in, inner connection, that intrinsic integral connection, like engraved letters, but we also need the, the rational. We also need to make sense of it in ways that we can relate to because then it makes it more internalized that we relate to it on our terms. It's not just part of who we are, but we also make sense of it and it also expressed in our own emotions. And seemingly is the opposite of halicha. Halicha means movement. Engraved letters never moves. They're unwavering. They never shift. Because in Judaism, halacha, even though it means law, it also means halicha, movement. Everything has to be alive, vitality, dynamic. So though it's engraved, it's not just we depend on it and say, take for granted, it's part of who we are. We always grow in, in that commitment and that connection, even when it's engraved. Shabbos Mavarchim Sivan blesses, of course, the third month, meaning the lunar calendar. Chedesh Sharishin is Nisan, Iyer is the second month. Chedesh HaShlishi, the Gemara says, why is it called Shlishi? Because everything around Teda is about Shlishi. In the third month, the Teda that's made up of three Tanakh, Teda, Nevi'im, Kesuvim, given to a nation of three, Kehanim, Levim, Yisraelim, and a whole bunch of other threes, Orient Lisoi, La'amet Lisoi, Bechedesh Tisoi, Biyarchet Lisoi. Why three? Because three is balance, it's harmony. One is Chesed. Two is Gvura. There's two different paths. Teferas is beauty, harmony within diversity that takes a multitude of individual forces and turns them into one unified whole. Which ultimately, Teferas Leir, Teferas Leisau, the ultimate purpose in life is balance. Not to have one or two, but to have many, but from the many one that they all directed, they're all pieces of a larger mosaic. So we bench that month, this coming Shabbos, in Bechukesei Telechu, we bench it, we bench it with blessing that the month of Sivan, the month of Yachit Lesoi, that number three should be powerful in each one of our lives. So wherever you look at your life, there can be extreme right, extreme left, you always want the middle path, the Kavam Tsoi, the Yachit Lesoi, the number three. More to be said on this and many other things, but these are some short messages that we begin with. And I want to refer you to episode 67, 117, and 212. As I've announced in the, in the last few weeks, I announced again, excited, that we have a completely new website dedicated to what? To My Life Chassidus Applied. It's called, you guessed it, chassidusapplied.com. Completely dedicated to this, even though we have our, all our materials still exist at meaningfullife.com, which is our flagship, you can say our master website, but this one is exclusively dedicated to anything My Life Chassidus Applied related, including all the archives of these episodes, including questions that you can pose anonymously, including all the essays from all the previous year's contests and this year's contest, and much, much more. There are Fabrengans there, there are talks, there are different analysis of Chassidus, Ayim Beis, Samarvov, and others, and other uh, treat, uh, discourses that are addressed there, and please take advantage of it at chassidusapplied.com. And of course, we depend on your support, so please consider dedicating a, a program a series of programs in memory of a loved one, in honor of a loved one. It's a great way to connect. It's a great way to help this program grow. And, and it's duly appreciated from the depths of my heart and from our entire team. Okay, since we are coming from Lag Ba'emer, there are still some Lag Ba'emer echoes that we want to talk about. 
So we'll talk about the one question was asked about the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Hayraf Simen. The Gemara says 24,000 of Rabbi Akiva's students died during, during Sfira. Yes, and the Gemara is in Yevomestaf Samach Beis. It's also a Medrash in Bereshis Rabbo. Is, I believe so. Is this figure rounded? Yes, in the Parshas, uh, I believe, Miketz. Is this figure rounded up or rounded down? Or is it the exact death toll? How are we to understand this? I checked the archives to see if you had answered this already. I couldn't find it. If you have, please send me the link to save repeating it all. I did, thanks. I did not recall addressing this. I, don't, I also looked in the Rebbe Sichis and the Frechsidis and not seen. There's explanations about the number 24, of course, 24,000. But was it exactly 24,000? It's a general question about many numbers you find in Shas in the Torah. And there's some of the opinion that say when it says a number, it's exactly that number, and some say it is rounded off. And I, I'm not going to argue that one is necessarily more correct than the other. Obviously, if you go with the Diuk of Teda, especially where the Rebbe emphasizes, every number is precise. But even if it's not the exact number of the students that unfortunately died in that epidemic, but the number 24,000 is relevant because that is the number, the general number that they were part of. When we say Shishim Ribumi Yisrael. 600,000 souls, that's a precise number. But we know that those souls break down into sparks, and further, that's why we have many more Jews that are than 600,000. So the same thing can be said about the 24,000, not exactly, because it's not necessarily Nisham is Clolius, but that it's a general number, but really there may have been one or two more, or one or two less, and it is rounded. If you look in the Gemara, it actually talks about Zugis, which means that Rabbi Akiva divided his 24,000 students into two groups. Two is 12,000 and 12,000, and put them together. One of the reasons was to prevent them from arguing. So he put a better student with a weaker student, so there shouldn't be that much competition. It didn't obviously help. But therefore, that alone that it says there were 12 and 12 tells you that these numbers are significant. And again, whether it was exactly that or not, I don't have anything definitive. I did not see anything in the commentaries. If any of you have seen something or have any thoughts on this, please we know that from the Rambam and he talks not about this he talks about the numbers why certain carbonus and other measures used during the time of the Beis Amigdash or in the Mishkan were this number so the Rambam says the numbers are not necessarily precise because any number would be you'd ask that question however we know especially that that is not the case that numbers are precise I the Rambam says that so the Rebbe has a very fascinating footnote in a, in, a, in a letter from Tu B'Shva, Tovshin Lamed Ches, I believe it's printed in Chelik Tezayin, Kutesichis, if I'm not mistaken, in the Hesophis, where he says, based on the Eir Tereva that the Rambam is talking Chetzenius Harotzen. Chetzenius Harotzen is not that vital, the exact detail of the number. In Primius Harotzen, it absolutely is the Negei of the number. So it could be different levels. Sometimes it's Negei that's precise. Sometimes when you go deeper, Sometimes it's not the gay that's precise because you're talking in general. When you go deeper in Primius, it is. Similar to Ashgacha Pratis, the Rebbe is Metavich, he reconciles, based on Derechaim from the Mitla Rebbe, that the Rambam says because Ashgacha Pratis is mainly Amina Medaber, on the human beings, but not on every necessarily creature. We know the Baal Shem Tov says, on every detail, even a leaf turning over. So he says there's Primius Ashgacha and Chetzenius Ashgacha. In general, what matters most is, of course, the purpose of creation, and that's where the primary hashgach and providence is. So then you would say 
the details, it's like I want my house to live in. Every detail is only a means to an end. So I don't really care whether it was you put, a, put an extra brick or less of a brick. But when you talk, we talk in the inner dimension of it, every brick counts and every fiber of existence counts. And it's not a contradiction, it's two ways of looking at something. And sometimes you focus on the overall, and then you don't focus so much on the details, and sometimes you focus on the overall plus the details. And this is, we find this in many places in Teda, the concept of whether the, the, the klal is most important or the prat. In the Mishkan we find it in other places and so on. Okay. Since again, Rajbi, Rajbi of course is the, the, the author of the Zayar, so here's a question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first I want to say thank you for all you do. I'm a big fan. I just watched your weekly Sunday stream and thought I'd send you this question that is disturbing me. I was interested to see him, I was interested to see in my email box mention of an upcoming symposium on the Zayar. But when I read the description, the description, it left me uneasy. I'm not going to read the whole description, but basically. The part that disturbed me in this description is that they're calling the Zohar a work of fiction that was invented, quote-unquote, by Moses de Leon in the 13th century. I am new to, study, to the study of Judaism, but in my brief encounter, my understanding is different, that at least its seeds come from Rav Shem Bayechai or even earlier, that is the Zohar's seeds. I understand that there are fundamental differences in the way the conservative movement, the lecture I'm referring to is a JTS, approaches the oral Torah. I'm not sure about this, but again, my understanding is they do not believe it came from God. I'm glad to see them acknowledging Jewish mysticism, but concerned that this approach and this new book will mislead many in their understanding of the sod level, the secret level, esoteric level of Torah, to, to detrimental effect. Perhaps I'm being judgmental and should not care what others think. I think it's because I find this field of study so enriching and important to appreciation of Torah, I care so much. I'm not sure if this is my own failure and weakness of character or legitimate concern. I guess I feel that, that they are spreading a false picture. Maybe I'm not just educated enough and they are teaching the truth. I don't totally object to an academic approach, though in my heart I feel it's lacking, as long as at least it sticks to Torah. But this seems misleading and belittling to the Zayar. Can you please tell me your views on the origin of the Zayar and if there's anything upsetting about the premise of this symposium or I should just get over it and focus on my own business? Many thanks. I, I submit this confidentially, but also give you my email should you care to reply. Well, I thought it's important enough to reply, not just privately. And this isn't a confidential question. It's a question that is important to address. Well, look... There are different views that are, we would call, not Torah-based views on how the Torah is looked at, how the Torah was conceived, how it was passed on, and its authority for ours. However, mainstream Judaism, from the beginning of time, from Matan Torah, till this very day, has always held the belief that the Torah is mina shamayim, given by heaven, and every word is precise, and yet, it's a living Torah because it does apply to each generation according to its needs. It's a living Torah. It evolves, but not that you can tamper with the fundamentals. It evolves in its applications based on situations. For example, today, we have concepts of genetic engineering, Shabbos elevators, different technologies that once upon didn't exist. So we take the same, the fundamental, universal, eternal principles and apply them. Here's not the place to go into a debate or discussion 
of why this is the approach to take and not the other. But suffice it to say, as the Rebbe writes in a number of letters, that all those that tampered with the foundations of Torah ultimately either completely assimilated because they didn't know where to stop or became no more Judaism. It wasn't Judaism. Just like even Lahavta, the Constitution of the United States, look how they are meticulous and how they argue one fine point and it's a man-made document according to everyone. But to go back to the Zayar, there are views when you go to the secular establishment, how they look at mysticism and their own views of it, but it's all based on their own rationale. It's not based on the way we accept Teira and Teira, including Primus Teira, passed on to us, Deira Chadeir in a Meseira, in the Ishma Pi'ish, not in any broke, unbroken chain, all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. And that is the same application to Teira and Teira Shabal Peh. Just like the Teira, Teira B'Pirushan Itna, as the Rambam says, in his introduction to Mishnah Teira. The Teira was given with its commentary, which means when Moshe was on Mount Sinai, he heard the Teira, not just the written, but also the oral interpretation. This oral interpretation includes all the oral interpretations in Talmud and Medrash, and also Primis Teira in Zayar, Primis Teira. Pshat Remesh Drusad, four different ways of studying Teira. The Primis Teira was passed on to, to a fewer group, more a minority, Yechides Gula, whereas the Nigla Teira was passed on to the most of the people. In time, it also started becoming to forgotten. So that's why Rabbi Noah decreed with his colleagues, now is the time to come to document and print the oral Torah, even though it was a prohibition not to write down the oral interpretation. Okay. Primisatera was the same thing. It was passed on. Rajbi was a Tana, who was a master of both Nigla and Primisatera. And he passed it on. He had a student, Rabbi Abba, as documented in the Zayr, where he where he taught Primis Atera as in Zayr. So Zayr is authored by Rashbi Shimon by Yechoi. He didn't write it, Rab Abba wrote it, but Rab Shimon Shayechoi taught it. Now, like all Tere Shabal Peh, you'll see in the Zayr there's discussions with different, different scholars and different sages. The Zayr itself has many sections. There's a section of Raya Mehemna that is, that is attributed to Moshe Rabbeinu. There's Sisrei Tere, there's other sections. Here, I'm not going to go into the details of the Zayr structure. You can look it up online. So Zayir is a Rajbi. Rajbi students passed it on just like Teda Shabal Peh was passed on generation to generation. And we have a chain. There's a beautiful introduction to the Sefer Shem Ramunim from Yesef Irgas. In the introduction, the publisher gives a very, very fascinating and in-detail history of how Primis HaTeda was passed on. Just like we have the history, Moshe Kibbal Teda Messina Masar Yeshua. And the, and the Rambam and others document the generations, generation after generation, that Teir Shabbat the oral Teir in general, was passed on. We also have a tradition that Primis Teir was passed on. And how finally got to the Arizal. So the Zayhar was a, is a, is a, is a text that was passed on, Balpeh. Probably people did write down different things, just like Teir Shabbat was written down. Now, in the year Shin, Shin, uh, Shin Chof, Shin Yud, in the caves, in two separate places, in, in, in Italy, one Krimuna, and one Manitoba, Shin Yud Ches, I believe, and Shin Chof, in that period in time, discovered, manuscripts were discovered in two different places in Italy. These manuscripts were people looked at, and many didn't understand what they were. Moshe de Leon lived around that time. They finally showed these texts, these manuscripts, 
two scholars and, and those that knew, Primisateris said immediately, this is Zayar, the famous Zayar that many knew they existed and those that knew what it said. So this was authorities that identified it. It wasn't sometimes a, a text came and someone said, hey, you're talking about Torah Jews. Torah Jews are the skeptics of skeptics. Someone would come out now and say they found a, a manuscript in some cave, underwater, anywhere. You think suddenly all the rabbis would say, great, a manuscript, a new part of Torah? It would go through scrutiny upon scrutiny upon scrutiny. First of all, maybe it's a forgery. Secondly, maybe it was inaccurate and that's why it was buried, because it was puzzled. Like you bury a puzzle of Sefer which is one of the most likely reasons the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried in caves. You don't bury potatoes in caves. It's because you put them, if they're psul or they're not the right version, or et cetera, et cetera. So it would go through many scrutiny. Nobody would just say, hey, great, we found the manuscript. Jews are people of the book. They're academics. For 3,000, for over 3,300 years, we've been probing and studying and analyzing every letter in the Torah. Every letter. Why are we called Seferim? Because every letter of the Torah has been dissected so many times. She thinks suddenly a manuscript appears in two caves and people say, oh great, this is uh, the mysticism. No, this was corroborated by the highest authorities. And it continued being corroborated when that Izal comes. And then after that, he's all the G'delim and the Kabbalim, all the way to the Baal Shem Tev and talking about the Alter Rebbe, talking about Ge'enim, Ge'enim. We're not talking about some people you can just throw something to them and say, oh, and they'll say, yeah. They know it from many different places, things they received from their teachers, texts that were hinted to. And Zayar, therefore, is very much Rajbi's book, Sefer, Bahai Chibura Delach, as the Zayar says, with your book, with your Magnum opus with your chibur, your composition, will, will go out of Golis. Now, of course, in that years, you had Moises, Moshe de Leon and others that were involved in publishing it. Because now you have to take the manuscript, decipher it, write it down. And that's where you have the Zayar, Zayar Godel. Different versions of Zayars came out because they were different texts. And then Tikkune Zayar and Zayar Chodosh because little manuscripts appeared and they came to fulfill the bigger the entire the, the corpus of the original Zayar. And then upon this your beauty Hazair, explanations on Zayar written by the Rizal and by the Ramak, and your beauty Hazair from the Alta Rebbe, and your beauty Hazair from the Tzamech Tzedek, Mitla Rebbe Tzamech Tzedek, probing, as I said, analyzing these words of Zayar. So that sets the record straight. I'm not here to debate this issue with academics, who I don't know who their teachers were. Can you say an unbroken chain that they knew Kabbalah? Where did they learn Kabbalah from? How do they know if someone gave them a manuscript? How would they know if it's an accurate one or not? And if they don't know, why would I trust them? We're talking about people who knew because they knew what was taught to them. They had it passed on generation to generation. Ideas, concepts, even, even expressions and words in the language of the Zayat. So as I said, I don't see it at all. It's like saying the doctors, the experts, the PhDs in Kabbalah are the G'delim that I'm mentioning. That is the Alta Rebbe, the Ramban. The Ramak, just to name a few. Yitzchak Saginor, the Raivet. And as you go back to all the works of Kabbalah, not just the Zayar, there's the other books, the Sefer Aboyer, the Sefer Atmuna, and more. Okay. So I hope that puts that to rest. Fine. Next question. Why did God create poor people? 
And, of course, the other second half of the question is, why did God create rich people? Interestingly, exactly those words, Lama nivra aniyim, Lama bara kodesh baruch aniyim, is an expression in the Gemara, but based in Baba Basra, in Medrash, Shmei Sraba, Parshalam Ralev Hey, and my Morich Siddhas that talk about it. Why did God create Anim? The Gemara, the language is that Turnus Rufus asks Rabbi Akiva, if God, if Anim, if he loves the poor, why, did he, why doesn't he have Rachmanus on them? Why doesn't he help them? And the Medrash asks the same question, the Dovid HaMelech asks Hashem, Liyakesev Liyazov, Amenu Hashem. You have all the gold and the silver. Why did you not distribute it equally? Why did you have to create classes, the wealthy and the poor? And Hashem answers, because chesed ve'emes man yin Who then will do chesed and emes? Who will do kindness? If everybody's equal, there'd never be kindness. No one would have to give. No one would have to receive. And the Maimodim talk about that. That's why Hashem created this, because the whole seder shtalshlus is a seid omuk. It's a deep secret of mashpia and makabal. A symbiotic relationship between give and take. So it's not just the, the poor, it's not just the poor and the rich. All of existence is a give and take. Everything you look at you look at the environment. You look at the human body. Wherever you go, everything is a interwoven network and web that gives and takes all the time. And if you stop that, the whole of existence would cease to be. To the point that just as the usher, the wealthy one, gives something to the poor, more than the owner or the wealthy one gives to the poor, the poor gives to the owner. As the Mitla Rebbe brings in Siddur from the Alter Rebbe, why not Seifim B'tchilosan is built into Ishtal Shlus? No Seifim B'tchilosan means the beginning is wedged in the end because that creates the Hashpa, the give and take. If the beginning didn't feel it needs the end, it wouldn't go down to the end. Well, the body communicates with each other from the head to the toe because the head needs the toe, the toe needs the head, everything needs each other. So let me give you a few sources on this. I mentioned the Chazal on it. Then there's a Maimir, a very classic Maimir from the, from the Rebbe Marash. It's the Maimir, Tiku Tofresh Chavches. It's printed at the back of Tofresh Chav Zayin. Rebbe Marash is Mamorim. The beginning of a year is often printed in the back of the end of the last year. So Tiku Tofresh Chavches. That Maimir itself is based on Maimorim before an Eda Teira, Drushim Rosh Hashanah, And um, page, I'll play with page Rosh Hashanah, 1391, as well as other Maimorim. Then there's, of course, a Maimor from the Friedrich Rebbe that's based on this Maimor from the Rebbe Marash. It's a classic Maimor, printed in Sefer Maimorim Kuntresim, volume 1, Kufyu Tesalaf, 119a, Omrab Shmuel Bar Nachmeni Tofresh Tzadik, based on the Maimor of the Rebbe Marash. And there it speaks very openly. Why creating anim? Why paupers? And he explains the medrash that in truth is God created the world. Everyone should be equal. But since he wanted chesed, like I said, to be done, so he gave a wealthy person extra, not because it belongs to him. In order for him to be wise, like a pakodin, I'm entrusting you with extra money that you're holding like a loan that I'm giving you in order to 
pass it on to the pauper. Because I want chesed in this world. So really it's not yours. Imagine that. But then the anim cry out, but why me? Why am I in the receiving? Why wasn't it the other way around? So there's a story, a story that the Friedrich Rebbe brings in Igris Kedish. I'll give you the sources in volume. The Igris Kedish is volume four. Page 44, 45. As well in volume 6, page 254 and 255. And the Rebbe cites the story in his Sefer HaTeldus. As we know, the Rebbe composed the Sefer HaTeldus, the story, the, the history of the Rebbe Marash. So on page 16, he cites the story. I'll just briefly tell it, and you can look it up yourself. The story is the year Tofresh Chavches, and the Rebbe wonders whether it's the same Maimer, but in Tafresh Chavches, after that summer, the summer of Tafresh Chavzayin, there was a big fire in Lubavitch. The Rebbe Marash could not stay there. So he traveled. He ended up in Kishinev. It's a whole story. He didn't want to stay in a certain place to give him a big house. But he ended up saying a Maimer Chesidus in the, big, in the mark in, outside. In a beautiful day, he said a Maimer Chesidus, a passionate Maimer Chesidus. And that's what this story talks about. Rabbi Zalman Zlatopolsky was a chosid there. And he relates, the Friedrich Rebbe cites him, of what happened. He says, on the third day of Tishrei, I'm sorry, the third day, sorry, on Tuesday was Vov Tishrei, many of the Gvirim and the distinguished people from Kishinev came to the Rebbe Marash, and they said, since it's a big city, they couldn't come Rosh Hashanah to hear his Maimer, they want him to say something for them. So he went out and said a Maimer, said this, on the Posig Tfilalani Kiyatif. And in the Maimon, he started saying, he's speaking about exactly this. What the Anim cry out, why, why is it, what, the, the question is, why did God create poor people? So he explained Mashpi and Makabal, everything I said before. And then, then he says, the Rebbe Marash raised his voice. Hadras Kedushas Kele. His sweet, his holy voice. His sweet and holy voice. And he spoke Bekel Tainev, like a, an argument, an argumentative tone. And what did he say? That yes, you need to have Mashpi and Makabal. And that's why you need to have a Mato and a Maila, someone that's higher, someone that's lower. But then he says, oh, but the other man Tainet, the poor person Tainet, he comes and complains. Why do I have to be the Makabal? And the Tainet from the other man is the Chatainet Sedekas. The Rebbe Marash said. And his argument is an argument, a good argument. Why him? Then he goes on, and Rebbe Zalman says that when the people heard these words, they started crying with horrible, with terrible, with very powerful tears. Halavai, Rebbe Zalman said. I would be zeichet to cry like that my last day of my life. And he said, we saw that day how the Rebbe could melt even the tough and somewhat insensitive hearts of the Givirim of Kishinev, and after that, they became Balitz Doke like never before. So what's the answer? We don't have a direct answer. So we have another story where Rebbe is Mechabed Ashirim. The Gemara says, Rabbein HaKadosh would honor the wealthy. question is, what is that? Tate is wealthy. We honor the wealthy. Money matters. 
So the Rebbe explains, because when Hashem blesses somebody with wealth, it means God is giving him a vote of confidence that I'm giving you more in order because I trust that you'll be wise enough to know to use it. So he's not respecting the money. He's respecting what the money symbolizes, God's vote of confidence in this person. So you could say that God shows certain people that he's confident in them that if I gave it to you, I know you'll share it. I don't know if it's a complete answer. Maybe the paupers he didn't trust that way. But then, of course, you'll say, so then what, what happens with the wealthy people who don't end up giving? Yes, they disappoint. They are disgracing the gift that was given to them. But upon him in answering the question, we have a lot of rich material. So this Maimed, both the Maimed of Rashmul Bar Nachmeni, Tafri Sadiq, and the Maimed of Maimed, all talk about this. I can give you a few more sources if you like. Why not? The Maimed was also um, said by the Rebbe. I don't know if all the details in Tafri Tafshin Chai in the Tishrei Maimorim, Tiku Bachedish, and Dish Hashem Be'imotze. And where else do we have anything? In Tov Shinei, Sefer HaSichas, Friedrich Rebbe, in HaSichach Sukkah Sicha, page 50, also tells shortly, briefly, the story that happened in Kishinev that year, Tov Reish Chavches. Just the equivalent, Tov Reish Chavches, is 1866, 1868, sorry, 1867, let me be precise. Okay. I think that covers that, and if you look in the Maimorim of the Tafresh Chavches, you actually can see there are more footnotes that the publishers added to get the bigger picture here. I would also add that even in the Mepharshim, in Eira Chaim, Amishpatim 22-4, the Alshech, Mishlei, 1816, the Ebenezer, Mishlei, 1917, also say similar ideas about how God entrusts the wealth, in order for them to give it and share it. Okay. Next question. Rich versus poor. Let's move on. And I thank you again for these questions. Very interesting questions. How can I feel, deal with conflicting feelings about Yiddishkeit and Chabad? I feel at times that I'm living a double life. Thank you for your weekly classes. Much needed wisdom and clarity in our times. On the one hand, I have a deep-hated I have deep hated issues with Judaism and particularly Chabad. Now I may believe that it's true, but perhaps the way it was taught to me I didn't like. I can't run away from it because I see it around me. The people I meet show the way I see that they behave. Anyway, I somehow feel better and my amuna strengthens when I go on shlichus, help a yid, have tailored discussions. Do others feel the same as me? Why do I feel like this? I can't go on shlichus or teach tailored every day as that's not what I feel I should do as other important matters occupy my life, such as work and marriage. Can I feel the same all the time? I'd like to feel stronger in my amuna, but I can't. I feel the world is too strong and big. I hope this is clear. Any and all suggestions are much appreciated. Thank you very much. To be honest, I didn't understand everything that was said, written here. But what I do pick up is, I think, a feeling that many people have. First of all, I'm not sure why you say you can't go on shlichus. If you believe in it, why can't you? Shlichus can be very successful, and it's a focused life, and it's a life that the Rebbe encouraged people to do. So I'm not really sure your reasons, and since we're not speaking face-to-face, I can't discuss it with you. But since you may be listening to this, I just wanted to throw that out there. Maybe you should talk about this with your mashpia. As far as dual feelings, people have that. You know, the fact of the matter is, we have a nefesh al-kis and nefesh abamis, a divine soul and animal soul. So there, right away, you're going to have a duality, two different voices that argue with each other. On, a, on another level, sometimes you grow up in the system and you see Teir and Chassidus can be beautiful. 
The standards are, are, are magnificent. That are bame. But then you start looking around and you see people don't live up to it. So you get this feeling that what's going on? People living double lives? And it could be very disconcerting and disorienting. But that's why it's critical to make your Yiddishkeit alive in your life. You learn every day Terem, every day Chesidus. And you learn it with others, with Chavrus and your Fabreng. So it brings in a Lachluchius, a moisture, a, a, a warmth, and a, a vitality. That's how you keep your standards alive and you keep yourself idealistic and don't succumb. We all will see at times in our lives things that disappoint us, even from people we really respected. But there are people at the end of the day. People are people. And we have to always look at what the standard is and not look at others, but look at ourselves. What are we doing to live up to it? So I understand your question. And as I said, many of us have times like that. The only way is to keep yourself tied above to what the Rabbeim taught us and not what you see around you, even when you see hypocrisy or other types of duality, or I should say duplicity. As far as yourself, the more you can dedicate your life with passion to a shlichus, to a mission, and focus, like you write exactly yourself. You feel better when you go on shlichus, you help a yid, you learn, you have tailored discussions, you teach. The more you do that, the more you're involved in helping, that is undeniably always a positive. And that creates a far more, I would say, integrated approach in life instead of being challenged, instead of being allowed to be swayed by the duplicity in within ourselves and what we see around us. Much more can be said about this, but on a personal level, I would say, speak to a mashpia that you trust. Get it off your chest, speak openly, and you'll see many of us will have these issues. You look around, it can be very depressing at times. But that's why we're taught to look with the right eye, to look up, and to look at what am I doing to make things better? Not why, why is things not better? What are you doing? And the more you're involved in doing something, the more you're part of the solution, the less you'll be part of the problem. Next question. It's a bunch of questions. These are questions that came in over time. Some of them are recent questions. And just to encourage you that all questions will be addressed. Sometimes it takes a little time because there are many questions keep on coming in. And I thank you for that. But you'll see interesting questions. Again, I'm always surprised that the questions I didn't expect. Question I didn't, I'm surprised that there's always new questions. Next question. Should non-Jewish spouses be welcomed into synagogues, into Chabad synagogues? It's the same question, just different type of standards. Uh, <clears throat> Unfortunately, we live in a time which, sad to say, it brings tears to all our eyes. Intermarriage is not a small matter. Large numbers of people are unfortunately intermarried. It could be a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman. It could be the other way around. Obviously, if it's a Jewish woman, the children are Jewish. But it's still, it's a plague. It's a challenge. Some of these people come to shul. So the question, of course, is what to do. So let's start. If the mother is Jewish and the husband comes along because he's the father, the children are Jewish, so there's an investment here. Even if it's the other way around, the husband is Jewish and the woman, the mother is not and the children are not. So it's true, you don't necessarily want to cultivate in them a sense of Judaism because they're not Jewish. You don't want to reject either because we never go negatively with anybody. But the man is Jewish. So this creates a lot of complications. So you have to make a distinction between welcoming people who come, not throwing them out, or inviting them. So if it's a non-Jewish family and they live a non-Jewish life, even if the man is Jewish, so fine, you have to find opportunities where you can invite him. 
You can't say to him, come and don't bring your children, because he often will bring his children, especially if he thinks his children are Jewish. But you have to make it also clear, because you don't want to fool him to think otherwise, that, you know, we love you, we love all human beings, but you have to know in a very sensitive and kind way. This can have bearing when it comes to aliyahs, it has bearing when it comes to bar mitzvahs, simchas, of course, weddings. Many mistakes have been made, people just don't want to address it. You have to be do it always in a kind way. We're not talking about harshly. We're not talking about in any obnoxious way. So to invite non-Jews to a shul, it's not their place to be. If they come, it's not our job necessarily to throw anybody out. Even to ask them nicely. Especially in this case where we're talking about it's a family. So it all comes down to the measure of involvement. Now, I know situations where non-Jews just walks into a synagogue not even married to a Jew. We don't even know necessarily. So we're going to go around and ask everybody. So slowly you pick it up and you see. And again, it has to be done always kindly and sensitively. And it's not always a job for us to reject somebody. If they pick something up, they're learning something, they're inspired, so be it. You just don't want anything bad to come out of it. That They should have, they think that they're Jewish or they should try to be influencing people with different agendas. So that's what you have to always be careful with. I'm not suggesting it's an easy solution. That's why case by case is always necessary. But these are just general principles. And this is also true. You invite people for a holiday meal. And it happens to be an intermarried couple. Or maybe that they think they're not intermarried. Maybe it's not a halacha conversion. So this is a little different. It's a meal. It's not a shul. It's not a synagogue. So this goes, the bigger question is, do they know what their status is? Do they know their status in your eyes? really touching upon a different point, but I might as well, since I'm talking about it, I don't want to ignore this. I've told many rabbis, Ashluchim and others, the best way to deal with things like this is nipping it in the bud. Be like a lawyer. A rabbi is not just an administrator, he's not just a fundraiser, he's also a soul doctor, and he's a lawyer in a way, a Torah lawyer. He knows Torah law. If someone came to you as a lawyer and said, I want to buy house insurance, or I want to buy a certain... um, product, a different type of insurance. A good salesperson, a good lawyer will tell you, buy AAA, the most secure version, not AA. You want to hire an architect, hire the best one. When it comes to conversion or other halachic matters, there is AAA. This is not suggesting AA is acceptable, but just it's a way of expressing. The highest standard is a halachic conversion. The truth is, it's the only standard. But sometimes people need to be put in that terms and say, I am here to represent to you the standard that will be accepted by all Jews. You go to Israel. Children will always be accepted. If you do a conversion another way, which is not a lochik, besides the fact that it's not a legitimate one, but even for those that think it is, it's definitely not the highest standard. Again, I don't want to give the impression I'm talking about that, that it's a standard but not the highest, but I think you get what I'm saying. So your objective is you're helping the person. I'm helping you by giving you good advice. Get the best. And that way you'll prevent a lot of problems. I know it's a little digressing, but I wanted to mention that in the context of this. Okay. Next question. Does a tinnik shenishba have free will? Someone is a tinnik shenishba, does he have b'chira chafshis? Doesn't a yid always have b'chira free will? Even non-Jews have b'chira will for seven mitzvahs, as explained in Igris. They have free will for their seven Noahid laws, which is ethical laws of right and wrong. Is this discussed anywhere? I, I have not seen it discussed directly. There are sikhs of the Rebbe. Let's make it this clear. 
Atinik Shanish by the Rambam Paskins is not a mazid, is not a shegig, is not an anus. A mazid is someone who does something deliberately wrong. God forbid. A shegig is mistakenly, an anus forced. Atinik Shanish is none of the above because he doesn't know. It means a child growing up in captivity, he never told about Shabbos, never told about any mitzvah and teda. How could you expect that person to be responsible? So of course they have free will. They have free will in matters that they're aware of. But if they're not aware, how could you expect if someone who's not even aware that Shabbos exists, that doesn't mean they don't have free will. It means they're ignorant. And that's why the Rambam Paskins is Potter Mikola Mitzvahs. Our mission is, and because so many people, if not all, today are Tanekesh and Nishbu, is to make them aware and to teach and inspire. But remember, it's not just they're not aware technically. They're also not aware emotionally. They don't relate to it. So it's not just, oh, now I told you Shabbos, it's suddenly responsible to keep Shabbos. No. They have to educate them, inspire them, understand what the value of it. It's your tradition. So the answer briefly is, same thing, not, not Tineshanishba. A person who doesn't know something, they're, they're not responsible for something they don't know. Tineshanishba, it's, it's in the most blatant way. But if they don't know, they don't know. Now, I know, you could say that Shegig or Anus, etc., but... The bottom line is, there's no pchir in a situation where a person completely is oblivious of something. The Alter Rebbe says from Arizal that even Shege comes from some type of element of the Nefesh because if you didn't have some blemish, you would not be possible to make a mistake like that. But that's another discussion not so relevant to our point here. Next question. Coma, vegetative state, and brain death. What is the halachic view of matters regarding one, coma and vegetative state, number two, brain death? And what are the halachic and hashkafic reasons for this? So first of all, Rahman al-Islam, God forbid, I would ever want to talk about something like this, but the question did come in not more than, more than one person over, the, over time. So with, of course, the big disclaimer, I'm not paskening, not a poisik, this is not a matter of psak here, I'm just going to put some things into context. To give ACS words that you can use, but you have to, in every case, needs to be asked by a Pesach halacha. God forbid if a person is in this state, it's to be asked by a Pesach who knows the given situation, and you can't go from one situation and extrapolate to another. This is unequivocal, what I just said, especially when you're talking about such matters of life and death. With that said, there are certain principles, questions that have come up in modern times that did not exist in the past. In the past, before the modern technologies and medicine, that was able to, through machines and through medicines and through other ways to keep people alive and, and even revive them and give them many more years, once upon a time when a person got ill or disease, God forbid, or something else, and, and then their body stopped, the, the different bodily organs stopped functioning, the vital organs, and they died. There wasn't a concept that one part was still alive and another part was usually not alive. Even though there are scenarios but not quite as intricate as we have today. The concept that you could have somebody who's in a completely certain state, but they're still, their heart is beating, or other things like that. So a new slew of questions have come up halachically. What defines death? What defines a person being dead? But before we get to that, let me address the first one. Coma and vegetative is nothing to do with brain death. A person who's in a coma and vegetative state is completely alive. The fact that they're in a coma and vegetative state could be for different reasons. So let's not equate the two. To say because they're in that state and they need something to keep them breathing or whatever it may be does not mean you can just simply, God forbid, take, take over, the, over the machine because that's that murder. 
You can't just say, you know what, let me not help them because they're alive. A brain-dead state is another story. That's a question. Because according to modern medicine, the stem, the, the brain stem, or other forms of brain death, means that basically the person is not going to be, survive this. So there's a brain-dead state. However, they may still be breathing and their heart is pumping. So the question is, this brain-dead that medicine today calls death, which means if a person is brain-dead but other parts are still, are, are still alive, you can take an organ and, 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 and transplant it when that's allowed, you could say that's possible if, because the brain death, even though, because even though that they're, 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 in order to, many of these organs need to have the blood pumping in them still, because brain death, so therefore it's not murder. Or as according to Taylor, it's called murder. Which also means you can't take them off any life support, even if they're brain dead. So this is an intricate discussion with different opinions, a number of opinions, from Khumra to Kula, and I'm going to just briefly sum up, the, as you said, the Ashkafik and some of the basic principles. So, of course, where do we look? We have to look in the Tater. What does the Tater call death? How do we define the end cessation of life? So there's two main places, the Gemara Sugi and Yuma Pehei, and the Sugi and Oles Pehrek Aleph Mishnavov. Start with Yuma. Yuma Pehei talks about somebody, God forbid, a building, a structure fell on them. And how do you determine if they're alive or not? So it says, Ada Chaitim. Basically based on their respiratory, respiration, breath. If the breath stopped, some hold, that's considered death. But when you read the Gemara closely, there's also talks about the heart. So there are opinions that it's both the breath and the heart. Some say only one, breath without the heart. Some say it's interdependent, one will lead to the next. That's one. According to that alone, you could say brain dead is not part of it. If the blood and the, if the heart and the respiration are working, Brain that does not change the fact. However, there's the mission in Olis. The mission in Olis talks about being decapitated, God forbid. And therefore, you can learn from that that that's considered a form of death. Well, that is considered death. So if the brain isn't working, that's a form of decapitation. Because the brain is a part of the body. It's actually the central nervous system. Others say, no, you cannot derive from that anything because it's not necessarily decapitation unless under certain circumstances where the brain is completely liquefied. Again, I don't want to go into the morbid details. But there's, and there's a second point. Who determines, even if you were to say that according to the mission, it is that way, who determines that it's actually brain dead? Maybe the machines are not measuring properly. Maybe there are things that are still alive that we're not aware of. So based on that, people are much more strict. And, and brain dead is not enough to, to declare someone not alive. Now, what's the Psaq Halacha? There are different opinions from one extreme to the other extreme, and that's not the scope of our discussion here. But this is the context of how it's talked about and the different aspects of the situation. And therefore, to really, look at, to really understand and look it up online, there's plenty written about it. But Halacha-wise, absolutely only through a Psaq Halacha, someone who's a mumche in this sugya, not just a person, a mumcha expert in the sugya, because every case can be different. You have to know the details, details, including exactly what the doctors are saying, what exactly is working, what is not working. I apologize again. I didn't want to talk about such a topic, but the question has come in, so I decided I'll address it. Okay. What else do we have here? We have a follow-up on anti-Semitism. 
And it's a long one, so I'm not going to, which was in episodes 251 and 252. So I'll just read a part of it, and I'll follow up in the coming weeks. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for an excellent program that continues to benefit so many people. I would like to share my thoughts on dealing with anti-Semitism that you discussed over the past few weeks. Over the past year and a half, I've engaged in constructive dialogue online with around 30 anti-Semites. It just sounds funny, that's all. It's pretty sad, actually. And I'm writing to share the knowledge that I've gained. My policy in these discussions was never to bash or insult, even if I was bashed, even if I was bashed or insulted. Thanks to, the, thanks to these discussions, I've seen 80% of the rhetoric changed for the better. A couple of these individuals have publicly thanked me for engaging in civil discourse. Based on observation, the majority of anti-Semites are logical people who have been misinformed and are willing to change their views if presented with the facts in a respectful manner. My experiences are proof that there are things we can do and say that still have a positive impact. It goes on to say here is a compilation of their complaints and effective ways of addressing these issues. I'm, as I said, because of time limits, I just wanted to give this introduction, but I want to make one comment. You know, not everyone's going to necessarily agree with this approach. Why, why engage with them? People who are anti-Semites are, are, are narrow-minded, racist, and um, why, why educate them? I commend you. If you actually were able to change their minds and they have grown from this, I can't argue with success, but I'm not sure what motivated you and how do you really know they're real, it's online, etc. But I will hopefully read some of what you've written, and I may agree or disagree, so just be, bear, bear, be aware of that. And I want to say to anyone that has the same reaction I have, is don't come to any conclusions. I got a letter. I chose to read it. And let's see what the person says before we come to any judgment or conclusions. And as you know, I'm not going to be bashful, and, or nor will I mince words in my reaction. But I wanted to get the conversation going, so we will talk more about this in coming weeks. See, there's a lot. You've written a lot. A good three, four pages on this. Okay. Let us go to the Chassidus question now. The question is like this. Who repairs the shattered containers, containers of Toyu? God or us, humans? On one hand, we learn that the balanced world of Tikkun, which is the world of Atsilus, comes to repair the dissonance of Tayu. Tayu was a world, or is a world, where conceptually, not physically obviously, the energies and containers, the purpose of their existence, and the function had, were tense. The energies were too intense, the containers were too fragile, so it shattered. It created a, a break. That would suggest that God who put into place the world of Tikkun is the one who repairs Tayu. On the other hand, we learn that our entire work in this lowest of worlds consists of Avedis Habirurim, to repair the shattered pieces and gather their sparks together. Which one is it? Okay, an excellent question. To put it, to rephrase it, we, the world of Tayu, just like the Tzimtzum addition, is something that's perpetual. Part of Seder Ishtalshlus, after God concealed his presence in the divine Tzimtzum, then began a Seder Ishtalshlus of the Kav creating one level after another level. But there is a fundamental tenuousness and tension in Seder Ishtalshlus because the Tzimtzum addition, though it's a concealment, but it creates a distortion, 
a distortion. You can think that Eneid Movade is not the only omnipresent consciousness. There's independent sense of consciousness. So the way I always put it is that Toyu is a form of a market correction. It's like when things are not really in place. Before the Tzimtzum, everything was aligned. And there was nothing else. God and God alone. But after the Tzimtzum, even though the higher worlds are very much aware of divine, but the mere fact that the Tzimtzum means there's now another entity aware. So Toyu in a way is a, like a wake-up call, a red flag that something is wrong. There's something imbalanced here. We can't be at peace with the world post-symptom. So the containers shatter. But say, sir, I'm not living this. That's not the kavana. The reason God did it, he destroyed in order to rebuild that now would come tikkun. Once you've had this complaint, just think of it like a human body where there's something wrong. So do you want to just live with God forbid with that wrong thing or you want the body to complain and you break out either in pain or something breaks down to tell you do something to fix it comes Elamatikun and repairs it. It takes these shattered containers, takes this tension this, that resulted from the tension from the dissonance, and, it, and, that, and that, those pieces become rebuilt. Tikkun. So Atsilis has its own energy of its own outside of it repairing. But it also is made up of repairing the shattered fragments. Think of it, an example would be a narrative. A book is written, it's a story. Very clear story, you read it, you see the whole plot. But then someone comes and tears the book apart and scatters its pages. Now it's a bunch of words and letters everywhere. Tikkun starts putting these pieces together and does what? You can start reading the narrative again. So the broken shards, which are the letters, the sparks, which are now scattered, which were once once in a long flowing narrative, now are being rebuilt and you're putting them back together again. You're rebuilding the puzzle. And this happens in Atzillas, then Bria, Yitzira, Asiya, as explained in Kabbalah and Exodus. Now all of that is even before Odom and Chava came into Ganeid. When they came in Ganeid, they didn't come into a world of Tayu. They came into a world of Tikkun. Because Tikkun did its job to create an organized world. But they came into a world that also is not pre symptom There's a concealment going on. And they have work to be done. There's work to be done. of Shamra, to make sure existence is aligned with the divine. So as much as Asilus B'ri Yitzhida was Mesakin, it now needs Avedis Adam Mata Lamayla. And that's what they begin doing. So the question, of course, going back, is which one, who does the Tikkun? Do we do the Tikkun? So there's a powerful Maimon, Pinchas Tofresh Ayin Hei. In volume two of Hemshech Ayin Beis, Mamish discusses this. And says, there's a Momayla Lamata Dikabirir through Shema that Hashem does. As he creates the worlds, like think of the human body is created with a built-in immune system. There's a built-in tikkun, a healing system in the worlds. But it does not, it's not powerful enough to turn all the worlds into elokus. Atzilus remains elokus. And the best part of what was shattered of the debris of Atayu is repaired in Atzilus. What he says there, that Atzilus of Atayu is repaired in Atzilus of Tikkun. And then what's left over is then repaired by that silly, the Bria of Tayu is repaired, the Bria of Tikkun. And you'd see that Asiyah. Then we come into this, and Odom and Chava begin the Aveda. And they could have also done an Aveda that would have been without battle. But they ate from the tree of knowledge. And that caused them to now you have to go struggles. At the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. 
the struggle. This is Avedis Abur Mamatalamaila, the tikkun we create. Had all the Manchavid done what they had to do, Mashiach would have come, it would have been like a great flame that would have dragged, drawn all the sparks to it. They didn't, now the work becomes Mamatalamaila. We have to actually go find these sparks all over the world. And that's the generational transmigration of human beings going to different parts of the world, ultimately to Chatzik Kadra Tachten, America. As the Friedrich Rebbe points out, and the Rebbe so often emphasizes. Because here, it's the place where Matan Teda is not revealed as it was in the hemisphere where Matan Teda was given, where Israel is, that hemisphere, the upper hemisphere. So now we elevate it from the bottom up, and this creates the ultimate tikkun, even in a greater, deeper, more premistic internal way, that will ultimately bring Mashiach, and then the world will be repaired and never again to be broken. So but from the above down, does a repair, but it doesn't do the complete repair. It's like the Kayach the Ebrister gave in the Beis Amigdosh, or in other times. It's a power from above. We need from below, and that's where the Tikkun that we achieve. That's in brief the answer, and look in Pinchasai and Hey, it's a rare mimer that talks about this topic in such detail. I also refer you to episodes 157 and 194, where the topic of Toyo was also discussed. And with that, let us go now. Essay Contest 2019. The next three essays in order of their marks. So we're talking about still top essays. All three this week are in Hebrew. Again, to demonstrate how well the Hebrew essays did. The first one is Hisalmus Vatchoka Kipitaron Effectivi. Denial and avoidance as effective solution. Of course, it sounds counterintuitive. Written by Yisrael Dandrowitz, age 41, Arad, Israel. He's raised by Samedrish Be'era Ovis. He's the head of the base Samedrish in Be'era Ovis. Be'era Ovis. So he begins. He says it's, it's known, it's an axiom, it's, it's accepted rule that any type of pushing aside something, denial or avoidance, is considered a problem that needs a solution. And he goes on to explain how Pichsidis, there's actually a benefit in it. So it's a very counterintuitive essay, touches upon something really interestingly, and brings a whole uh, context, comparing it to other psychological approaches, and, and <clears throat> comparing it to Tanya, ultimately, Pichsidis explains how we have to actually avoid, hesachadas, moving away from certain things is actually the best solution instead of immersing in it and being consumed with it and being obsessed with it. Beautiful, beautiful essay. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The next essay, I just want to bring, it brings an excellent, beautiful muscle that I just wanted to look at again. Yeah, you'll see it at the end of the essay. This essay and all essays can be seen at chassidusapply.com. Essays, there's a whole special essay section. All the newest essays are posted there. Subscribe to our weekly emails, and we also send them out to you weekly in your inbox. Next essay, Misam Pel Adam. Who gave a man a mouth to speak? From the verse in Shmois. Menachem Endel Amitai, or Amiti, age 24, Jerusalem. He's a student. And he talks about exactly that, the power of speech. What is the true power of speech? Based on what Moshe Rabbeinu said to Hashem, what Hashem said to Moshe, who gives a person a mouth to speak. And it gives you a very interesting, I would say almost um, uh, 
new, innovative way of looking at human speech. And ways that, of course, based on Chassidus, and ultimately coming away with a different approach of how we should look at our speech with a far more deeper conscientiousness and sensitivity. And finally, essay number three is Mindfulness Chassidi. Hasidic mindfulness. Shmuel Elboim, age 40, Beitar, Elite, Israel. He is responsible for the editing and editorial content on the website chasidut.tv. Okay, well, the name tells you it all. Hasidic mindfulness. It's a big, a big hot item today. But what does Hasidus have to say about it? Mindfulness and looks at what the secular world calls it and how different it is in Chassidus is a far, far different responsible approach of a person being able to focus like a panimi at the moment, in that moment, living the moment and not allowing other distractions to affect them. The power of the second. And um, does a wonderful, again, a masterful job and uses the words of akudim, nukudim, vrudim which, by the way, is another akudim, nukudim, nukudim, is tayu, vrudim, is tikkun, to use that as a model for this type of focus. Again, brilliant essay. Thank you for that. And with that, my friends, we conclude this week's episode of My Life, Chassidus Applied. It was a very rich episode, many different topics. Some I still have to continue, which I will do. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 262. May it be a blessed Chedosh Sivan. Well, we're going to still be speaking about that next Sunday, but this is Shabbos Mevorchim. In Bechukesi Telechu Chazak Chazak Veniz Chazek, the end of the Sefer Shlishi. That we should strengthen and strengthen and be strengthened with Tehidus Chaim, and especially Primis HaTehidus that illuminates for us and gives us direction, a blueprint for life. Everyone be well. Thank you.